again, and uh, as we prepare to enter God's word, I invite you to bow with me, and let's ask the Lord's blessing. Heavenly Father, we thank you again for your word. Thank you that it is living and active, that it is for us today, that it is not just an academic exercise to, to study some words on a page, but it is a spiritual exercise where these words become alive through your Holy Spirit, and that it speaks life to our hearts, to our lives, that it illuminates uh, areas in our lives where perhaps we are in error. And Lord, we pray that through this, your word, that you would show us truth this morning, that we can receive it, that we can apply it, and that it would change our lives as we, as we live it out by your power at work in us. So bless it. Speak through me, your servant, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. It had been a, a long day for the clerk at the cosmetic counter of a large department store. Having been on her feet all day, she was looking forward to going home to put her feet up on the couch. But, of course, right at closing time, without fail, a man rushed into the store needing help. He rushed up to her counter and frantically said, Tomorrow's my wife's birthday, and I don't have anything for her. I need your help. What do you recommend? So the clerk brought out from under the, bo- from under the counter a nice bottle of perfume that was worth about $100. He looked at the price tag, got sticker shock, and said, no way, that is way too expensive. Do you have anything else? So she proceeded to pull out a $50 bottle of perfume. Again, he said, no, 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 that is way too much still. What, what else do you have that's less expensive? So she dug around a little bit more under the counter, and she brought out the tiniest little bottle of perfume that was only $10. Still looking at the price tag, the man said, no, you you really don't understand here. I want you to show me something that's really, really cheap. Well, the now exasperated clerk quickly reached under the counter, pulled out a mirror, and held it up towards him. (laughs) Try this, she said. Now, mirrors don't lie, do they? Or do they? Do mirrors lie? I I know I've looked at mirrors that distort your image, but if it's a good mirror, a true mirror, when you look in its reflection, it shows exactly what is on the other side looking back. Now, let me demonstrate for you. You know that I'm a father of of a little girl because literally the only mirror that I could, portable mirror I could find in our house was looked like this. So uh, it fits with the uh, makeup story. But there's, there's a little mirror in this little, uh, this little toy makeup kit that I have here this morning. And, w- and when I look in the reflection of this mirror, it, it shows me for who I am. And, and I can have an image of myself in my head, you know, what I think I look like. But when I look in this mirror, it shows me what I actually look like. You know, my, my own self-perception isn't exactly true all the time. In fact, when I look in, when I look in this mirror, I could think, oh, you know, I, I did my hair quite well this morning, but then I look and, oh, there's, there's hairs out of place. You know, and I can think, oh, you know, I shaved really carefully, but if I look really closely, there's, there's a couple of hairs that I missed right back over here, right? And, and if, I, if I keep looking into this mirror, I can begin to notice, you know, there's other things that maybe aren't quite as good as I hoped for. You know, there's some blemishes. I got this spot on my nose. Uh, you know, I got wrinkles that are getting a little bit deeper, and they're, they're staying. They're, they're there as I get older. 
And, you know, the more I look in this mirror, the more I can pick out imperfections. And this isn't even beginning to look at, you know, my crooked teeth down on the bottom row, right? You know, if you look in this mirror for too long, does anyone else want to turn, by the way? <laughs> right? We, we look in this mirror, we can begin to find many, many blemishes, many flaws. This is what a mirror does. Now, just as a mirror can reveal our flaws... So too God's word and his law reveals our sins. The law is a mirror that reveals what our souls are truly like. And the longer we look into the law's reflection, the more imperfections we will find in ourselves. We might have this idea that, you know what, I'm a pretty good person. I, I, I'm, you know, I'm a pretty, pretty kind, I'm, I'm nice, I'm thoughtful, I'm considerate, I'm generous. But when we start to look into the law, the longer we look, just like the longer we look in this mirror, the more flaws and imperfections we will find in ourselves. And the longer we look, the more and more ugly we begin to appear. Now, to set the stage for this text this morning, we're going to jump right ahead to the conclusion in Romans chapter 3, verse 20. And if you have your Bibles, please turn there with me. Romans chapter 3, verse 20. And we're going to kind of, uh, we're going to start at the end and then we're going to work our way back to this verse. Because this is exactly the, the key verse in this passage that Paul wants to uh, give us. And I'm going to use it to lay the foundation on this principle that the law acts as a mirror in our lives. Romans 3, verse 20, the very last line of the verse. Paul tells us, through the law, we become conscious of sin. So through the law, we become conscious of sin. Just as I become conscious of my appearance by looking in a mirror, so when I look in the law, I become conscious of my sin. Of this, John Calvin, the great reformer, said, The Bible is like a mirror. In it, we see our imperfections and the curse that comes with it, just as a mirror shows us the spots on our face. It's like the person who had some pictures taken by a professional photographer, and he looked at them, and he didn't like them. So he took them back to the professional photographer and said, I want my money back. These pictures just don't do me justice. And so the photographer looked at the pictures and said, well, you don't need justice, you need mercy. <laughs> you see, we might not like what the picture reveals about us, we might not like how we look, but it is accurate. It reveals us for not who we think we are or what we think we look like, but for who we truly are and what we truly look like, whether we like it or not. It reminds me of the uh, notoriously harsh judge on the singing show American Idol named Simon Cowell. I think he's been on some other reality shows since then as a judge. And uh, does anyone remember Simon Cowell? Some of you have watched the show. You know who I'm talking about, right? He's this British guy, and, and he's, he's notorious for being extremely blunt, critical, and harsh in his judgments of the contestants. Now... If you remember the, show, the singing show, American Idol, or its spin-off show, Canadian Idol, you'll know the premise is that they bring this long lineup of aspiring singers who all believe that they have incredible voices, right? And that's what makes the show kind of hilarious, is everyone thinks that they're the next pop star. And many of them, it's just because their mothers told them so, right? So, but they come in there, and, and they're belting out these songs thinking that they have a beautiful voice, 
And so some of them are quite cringeworthy. And I remember one that stands out. This singer named Mary, who after she was done, quote-unquote, singing, Simon Cowell said to her, and I quote, All right, Mary, honestly, that was one of the worst things I've ever heard in my life. What made you try out for this competition? You can't sing a note in tune, and you have one of the weirdest voices I've ever heard. And you could just watch Mary's face go as she was deflated, as he burst her bubble, her dreams of becoming a pop star, and not only that, being told that she had one of the weirdest voices he had ever heard, and I had to agree, it was weird. So, that might seem like a very harsh judgment, right? He should have been nicer about how he went about it. But this is exactly the same way in which the law judges each one of us. It reveals us for who we are, and we say, ouch, that hurts. Why did you have to be so blunt? You could have said it more nicely. But you know what? The law doesn't care. The law doesn't care about how we feel. It doesn't care about what we think. It just reveals us and declares, this is what I see. This is who you are, whether you like it or not. Now, as we've learned from the beginning of our series in Romans, the picture that Paul is painting of the human race, of mankind, it's not a pretty one. His vivid depiction of human depravity, especially as he lays it out in Romans chapter 1, the second half, and then carrying on to chapter 2, and we see how he describes the human condition, it almost makes us want to turn, or, turn away from the mirror. We don't like what we see, and so we just want to dismiss it, we want to run away. But if we want to know the truth, we can't do that. And we won't do that because the gospel is the only thing that can deal with this condition of what the law reveals about us. And in fact, the reason why Paul puts this ugly picture up front and we say, well, Paul, couldn't you have been a little bit nicer about it? Like Simon Cowell, couldn't you have dialed down the criticism a little bit? And the Apostle Paul doesn't dial it down. In fact, he he dials it up. And in this chapter, we're going to see him really show us what we are really like in the mirror of the law. Because until we know what we're really like, we don't fully appreciate how good the gospel is and why we so desperately need it. And so as we come to our text today, Paul gets to the punchline of what he's been saying for three long chapters. In chapter 1, we saw how the whole world is under God's wrath. We saw, again, how the, the Gentiles stand guilty and condemned, The moralists, the one who think they're good enough, they also stand guilty and condemned. The Jews, who believe they were God's special people, who therefore were were not guilty or condemned, they too, Paul says, are guilty and stand condemned. And so now in Romans chapter 3, verses 3 to 8, we continue to see that no excuses will be accepted. In these verses, Paul raises some of the man-made arguments which try to wiggle us off the hook, if you will, of human responsibility towards a holy God. And so he gives some of the human man-made arguments that he's heard and that people have given to him, saying, you know, why, we, why do we need this, this gospel? And so some of the ones that he, he phrases in the forms of questions uh, was one that's along the lines of this. Since man's unrighteousness only stands to enhance God's righteousness, and since our our sinfulness and our darkness only increases God's glory in contrast, 
Well, in a weird sort of a way, we're actually helping God, right? So then why do I still stand condemned as sinner if my sinfulness is enhancing God's glory? This was a human argument that Paul is addressing. Another one of the questions was this. Since God specializes in bringing about good from evil, then why can't we just keep on doing evil so that more good may result? Again, a a man-made argument. But at the end of verse 8, to all of these man-made arguments, rather than really getting into debating it philosophically or, or, or logically, these different arguments that people are trying to use to wiggle off the hook of being responsible, Paul gives a very Simon Powell-esque rebuttal that is equally parts crisp and harsh, and he simply says, their condemnation is deserved. That's it. He's like, I'm not even going to bother debating these arguments any further. Their condemnation is deserved. In essence, what he's saying is, you know that you're just trying to debate for the sake of debate. You're arguing for the sake of argument. I'm not going to cast my pearls before the swine to, to debate you on these points. Your condemnation is deserved. You're just trying to remove yourself from accountability. But I think he's pointing to the fact that deep down, they knew this is what they were doing. And you are going to get what you deserve, condemnation. Now, at this point, the original Jewish believers in Rome, who, imagine this, they're gathered together for a a church service. It wouldn't have looked quite like this. They will have been in someone's home. But like us, they would have been gathered together. They will have had the scroll that was mailed to them or delivered to them in some way. They, They have an elder who's standing up and reading this writing to the church. They're all standing around or sitting, however they're gathered, and they're hearing Paul write these words. And so in this moment, as they hear this uh, particular part of the letter being read, they're momentarily off the hook because Paul is writing, their condemnation is deserved, not your condemnation, right? So in this moment, they're going, at least Paul's aiming his gun somewhere else right now, right? He's not saying our condemnation, he's saying their condemnation. He's not talking about us, but not so fast. Because then, Paul continues in Romans chapter 3 and verse 9. What shall we conclude then? The we is including his listener, the church of Rome. What shall we conclude then? Are we any better? Paul's including himself and again the church. Are we any better? If their condemnation is deserved, what about us? Are we any better than them? Look at his reply. Not at all exclamation point not at all their condemnation is deserved are we any better not at all he's saying our condemnation is deserved when it comes to being under the power of sin the law reveals to us that no one gets a free pass not one whether jew or gentile moral or immoral religious or non-religious Every last one of us, you and I included, we, Paul says, and he includes himself in that statement, we, our condemnation is deserved. And just in case anyone still thinks that they can try to wiggle themselves off the hook of accountability before a righteous and holy God, from verses 10 to 18, Paul then proceeds to quote a variety of scriptures taken from the Psalms and the prophet Isaiah. In verse 10, he writes, As it is written, there is no one righteous, not even one. There is no one who understands. There is no one who seeks God. 
all have turned away. They have together become worthless. There is no one who does good, not even one. Their throats are open graves. Their tongues practice deceit. The poison of vipers is on their lips. Their mouths are full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Ruin and misery mark their ways, and the way of peace they do not know. There is no fear of God before their eyes. So here, using the Old Testament scriptures, Paul demonstrates in every possible way that we are all, everyone, under sin. Sin controls our minds. He says no one understands. Sin controls our hearts. No one seeks God. And sin controls our wills. No one does good. He's making the case that sin has so thoroughly poisoned us from head to toe that it has corrupted our very natures, spreading through every part of us. And he uses the the analogies of the body, throats, tongues, lips, mouths, right down to our feet being swift to shed blood. We are thoroughly corrupted. As someone aptly wrote, sin is the pit into which we have fallen, but it is too deep for us to escape. It is the quicksand into which we have foolishly blundered, but from which we cannot extricate ourselves. It is the death we have entered, but from which we cannot restore ourselves to life. The more we struggle to break free, the deeper it sucks us in. Now, in response to Paul's harsh, let's say it makes Simon Powell look like he's sugarcoating things with his statement here. It's in your face, and there's no wiggle room here, is there? He says no one and all. We've all, we've all done this. There's not one of us who can look at this and say, but not me, not I. I'm not on this list. It applies to all of us. We can't sit here and say, hey, wait a minute. That may be true of so-and-so, but, but I'm just not that bad. In fact, I'm pretty, pretty good. I'm a good person. Well, in order to examine the truth of a statement like that, all we must do is pull out the mirror of the law once more. Right? That's all we have to do. I'm a good person. Well, let's take a look. Let's take a look at the law. Remember that it is through the law, Paul writes, that we become conscious of sin. So that is the purpose of the law. So let's ask, how good are you really? Okay, you're a good person. How good? Let's, let's try to determine this. We've done these sorts of exercises before, but it's helpful for us to be reminded, if you, even if you have. How good? How good? Have you kept the whole law? Have you been perfect at it? Anyone? No? None? Right? Okay. Have you kept it 95% of the time? Yeah? That's pretty good. What about that 5%? Right? 90%. I don't think anyone would even claim to say I've kept the whole law 90% of the time. I think if we kept going down and we were really down to the nitty gritty, most of us would say maybe 50%. Maybe. 50% is a passing grade, right? In school. <laughs> as long as I'm 50, 51%, I'm good, right? I got a passing grade, right? I'm good. Is that how God works? Does God grade on the curve? Of course not. He doesn't. And that's the problem. No one is perfect. James chapter 2, verses 10 and 11 states this clearly so that we, we, we don't have any wiggle room left after we hear this verse. Listen to what it says. James 2, verse 10. For whoever keeps the whole law, okay, the whole law, 
We're not just talking Ten Commandments. We're talking the, uh, what's the number? Is it seven? No, 700 and some total numbers of the law that was, that was all added. It's a massive number. The whole law, it says. Whoever keeps the whole law, so let's say 99% of the time, yet stumbles at just one point, is guilty of breaking it all. Okay? 99% success, but you stumble one time on one point, and according to God's word, you are now guilty of being a lawbreaker for all 700 laws. Think about this. One point. Who of us can say, I've only ever stumbled on one point? No one. We've all stumbled many times on many points. The verse continues. For he who said you shall not commit adultery also said you shall not murder. If you do not commit adultery but do commit murder, you have become a lawbreaker. Now again, you may say, yeah, but I've never murdered anyone or committed adultery. And to that, Jesus says, you have heard that it was said to the people long ago, you shall not murder. And anyone who murders will be subject to judgment. But I tell you that anyone who is angry with a brother or sister will be subject to judgment. Anger. Has anyone ever been angry at a brother or sister? Anyone? I have. Pick me. I'm guilty. Jesus continued in that same, in that same Sermon on the Mount, and he said, You have heard that it was said, do not commit adultery, but I tell you that anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Has anyone ever looked lustfully at someone? Yeah, guilty as charged. Guilty. Every last one of us. Hans Christian Andersen wrote the now famous parable entitled, The Emperor's New Clothes. Of course, the story goes, you're familiar with it. There's a certain emperor who is very fond of his appearance, and especially his fine clothing. And so he has some men come to him who offer to weave him the rarest and most costly garment in all of existence. And so this played to his pride and vanity, and so he agreed to pay them whatever they asked for. He was especially pleased that this garment, he was told, would be invisible to all but the wisest and most pure in heart. And so he commissioned this new garment at great cost. However, we know the men were, of course, con men. They were taking him for a ride. And so they began sitting at the loom, pretending to be weaving. And the emperor's curiosity is soon aroused, and so he sends his chief minister to check in on the progress. Seeing no clothing on the busy looms, but not wanting to be thought of as unwise or impure in heart, the advisors return to the emperor with a report about how fabulously beautiful it is. And it's it's going to be magnificent. So eventually, the weavers, of course, keep asking for more and more money. He keeps sending it. The emperor sends his second chief minister, who returns with an even more enthusiastic report than the first. Finally, the emperor himself is so curious, he needs to see the progress for himself. And so he walks in, he looks at the loom, and of course, he too sees nothing. However, not wanting to appear stupid that his advisors could see something that he couldn't, he proclaimed this was the most beautiful, exquisite clothing that he had ever seen in his life. He proceeded to decorate the weavers with medals and rewards and more wealth. And finally, the day came for the grand parade, the conmen dressed the emperor in all of his birthday suit, and they then skipped town with all of the money that he had given them. But the parade went on, 
And, of course, we know that the story goes. He walks in his birthday suit down Main Street, trumpets blaring, the, the whole kingdom lined up to see the most exquisite, beautiful clothing that had ever been made. And, of course, everyone, too, wanted to appear to be noble in heart and to be wise. And so they said, it's beautiful, it's exquisite, look at the colors, until finally it takes a little child to see the emperor in his birthday suit to declare, but the emperor has no clothes. And of course, it rippled through the crowd, the laughter ensued, and soon everyone admitted what had been obvious all along, the emperor had no clothes, he was naked. He wrote this parable to exactly illustrate our point this morning. We are naked before God. We stand naked in our sin, exposed, and we try to dress it up with all sorts of fancy things. We try to judge it up with our good works, our our nice attitudes, you know, our kind words and deeds. We try to dress it all up. And we say, look at me, look at what I'm wearing. I am clothed, but no, we are naked. The immediate consequence of Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden was what? They realized that they were naked and they felt ashamed, right? Sin exposed something that they had before been completely oblivious to. And so in the same way, the value of the law is that in its piercing reflection, we see ourselves as we truly are, exposed as lawbreakers before a holy God. That is the law's power. It reveals our condition, and so we stand condemned, receiving what we justly deserve, God's full judgment. So the question must be, must be asked. In fact, in desperation, we beg it. What then can save us from God's wrath? Can the law save us? For since the law has power to reveal our sinful condition, can it also save us from our sinful condition? Well, allow me to return to the mirror once more. Can the mirror reveal if this whole time I had a big like smudge of jam or peanut butter on my face from breakfast this morning that I missed? Could could that be revealed? I should have put one on just to illustrate the point. Right? But would, would that be revealed? Right, it would be revealed. But would I then use the same mirror to wipe said peanut butter and jam off my face? Would that work? No, it wouldn't. It wouldn't work very well at all. I might smear it around. I'd get it all over the mirror, smear it around. But it's not going to get it off of my face. I need something else. I need a cleansing agent. I need soap and water. And so it is with the law. The law reveals sin, but it is not the cleansing agent. It cannot cleanse us from sin, but it can show us that we need to be cleansed. Back to Romans 3, verse 20, the whole verse says this, Therefore, no one, Paul's including himself, and that includes you and I, therefore, no one will be declared righteous by observing the law. No one, not one. No one will be declared righteous in his sight by observing the law. Rather, through the law, we become conscious of sin. So don't miss this. The law is not useless. God gave it to us for a reason. And the reason is this. He gave it to us with its incredible power to reveal our condition and how lost we are. He gave it to us for that reason. But the law is completely powerless to save us from our sin. God didn't give us the law to save us. 
only to reveal that we needed a Savior. And Jesus emphasized this point in the Sermon on the Mount when he said, I tell you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, you will certainly not enter the kingdom of heaven. You see, trying to make ourselves right with God will just never work. In hockey, if you're a sports fan or or follow hockey, you know that there's a statistic called the plus-minus rating. How it works is that if a player is on the ice when the team scores a goal, he gets a plus in the plus side. That's what everyone wants. You want a plus. But if this player is on the ice when the other team, the opponent, scores a goal against his team, he gets a minus on the minus rating. And so throughout the season, statisticians will keep track of players' plus-minus ratings. And it's a running tally so that every time your team scores a goal while you're on the ice, you get a plus. Every time it's a minus. And so over the, the value, or pardon me, over the course of a season, the value of this stat is to show are you a plus player in the grand scheme of things or are you a minus player? For example, in the 2020 NHL playoffs that just concluded, the best plus minus rating belonged to Nikita Kucherov of the Stanley Cup champion Tampa Bay Lightning. And over the course of the playoffs, he had a plus rating of 15. So in the whole balance, that includes knocking off the times the other team scored when he, he was on the ice. He was a plus 15 player, the most valuable player to, to his team of any player in the entire playoffs. And of course, he had a significant contribution to them winning the Stanley Cup. However, while that is very impressive, it's still not perfect because goals were also scored against the Lightning while Nikita Kucherov was on the ice. And so when it comes to God's perfect standard to enter heaven, it requires a perfect plus rating. Not one goal against is allowed. Not one sin. And so, of course, as we've already established, No matter how many pluses we accumulate through our good deeds, through our works, there will never be enough pluses to overcome the minuses accumulated through our sin. Because all it takes is just one goal against, one minus, and we failed. As Paul famously summarizes just ahead in verse 23, For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And so if the law is powerless to save us, what or who can? And so we jump ahead in Paul's letter to Romans chapter 8, verses 1 to 4, our call to worship this morning. Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, because through Christ Jesus, the law of the Spirit who gives life has set you free from the law of sin and death. For what the law was powerless to do, Don't miss that. For what the law was powerless to do, because it was weakened by the flesh, God did by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh to be a sin offering. And so he condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirements of the law might be fully met in us who do not live according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. So here we see again that the law, Paul says, was completely powerless to save us. What the law was powerless to do, Jesus Christ was completely powerful to save and to set us free from the law by paying our sin debt in full. So that now through faith in Christ, we no longer stand condemned, but fully pardoned, forgiven, and set free, fully justified as if we had never sinned. 
And so now we stand righteous according to what Christ has done and not according to the flesh and what we have done. There's a poem called The Judge's Daughter that I've shared once before, but it fits perfectly to illustrate what we've just been learning from God's word this morning. Let me share it with you. The snow was still falling and all had turned white. The day was a long one and now it was night. Right before Christmas was due to arrive, he heard many cases, but still one survived. Bring in the last case. Let's get out of here. When lo and behold, who should appear? He knew her from childhood. They went back a ways. And here was the law now, his daughter to pay. The facts were presented. The judge clearly saw, no doubt about it, she'd broken the law. Now she was facing a fine or jail time. The judge knew his daughter could not pay the fine. What a dilemma. For all there to see, two roles to play, which one would he be? The role of a judge? There's justice to pay. The role of a father? His love to display. The judge started thinking he had to act fast. And then it came to him, solution at last. Down went the gavel. She's guilty as sin. No one could say now the judge wasn't in. Then came the next thing. Who would have guessed he walked down beside her to write out a check? He said to his daughter, extending his hand, You can't buy your freedom, but surely I can. The story would end here with everyone glad, but as it turns out, it ended quite sad. The payment he offered would now be rejected. The daughter so prideful, she would not accept it. If you think it foolish, the gift she turned down, remember the story a truth to be found, God up in heaven, a judge to begin, then came down to die, the payment for sin. So when you consider the daughter her pride, remember your own, there's no need to die. You see, just as the judge perfectly upheld the law and justice was served, yet in his love for his daughter, he found a way to pay the price. But yet she was still free to choose what she would do with that gift? Would she receive it or would she reject it? Would she realize that she could do nothing to repay it and gratefully receive or in her pride would she say, no, I'm going to do this my way? The judge would not violate her free will and neither will God violate ours. If we insist in our pride to say, no, I'm going to keep using the law, I'm going to do it my way, I'm going to find a way to do it on my own, Fine, have it your way, but just know it will not save you. You will not enter the kingdom of heaven through the law. It can only reveal that you need a savior. And that savior, my friends, is Jesus Christ. He is the only way. We cannot do it ourselves. And so if you have not yet done so, let me invite you today. Place your faith in Jesus Christ and in him alone. You cannot add anything to what he's done. You can only receive it in faith and say, Jesus, thank you for what you've done. I receive it. Love him in return and live a life of gratitude for this incredible gift that he has given. And so now from this day until the day when we stand before the Lord Jesus, when you look in the mirror of the law, if you have received him in faith, the incredible thing is that now rather than seeing your own reflection that old flesh marred by sin. Instead, now, Paul says, we are fully justified 
because we are hidden in Christ. And so when the law is, is applied to us because of Christ, we no longer see our sin. God no longer looks with condemnation, but instead he now sees the face of his son. And so when we look in the word, may we not see our condemnation any longer, but may we see the reflection of Jesus' face. For we are now hidden in him. Our lives belong to him, and his life is our life. His righteousness is our righteousness, and it's applied to us so perfectly, it's just, it's just as though it were ours from the very beginning. For it is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And so as we go, remember this one thing. Always remember, you didn't earn it. I didn't earn it. Jesus did with his own blood. And so all glory, honor, and praise belongs to him and to him alone. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we honor you, we glorify you, and we thank you that you did for us what we were powerless to do, what the law was powerless to do. All it could do was reveal how lost we are, how sinful we are. But thank you that though it, re it revealed us for the darkness that is in us, for the sin that is in us, it also pointed forward that we need a Savior. And you revealed that you are that Savior. Only you can save us from this sin. The law is powerless, but you are powerful. And we thank you that through faith in you, we can be saved. And not only that, but the guilt, the condemnation, the shame of our sin is also dealt with, removed, and cast aside. We are now hidden in you. Your life becomes our life, and we stand before the throne of grace, not condemned, not looked down upon, but instead we can come boldly because the Father welcomes us, not because of what we've done, but because of what you have done, Lord Jesus. And for that, we give you so much honor and praise and worship today. And we pray, Lord, today for anyone who's hearing these words, if they are convicted that they have not received this, that in their pride they think that somehow they can apply the law well enough to earn their own way. Oh, Lord, I pray for them this moment. You will show them that that's the fool's way. It's not the way of wisdom. It's only a way that leads to death. But I pray, Lord, that you would show in your mercy that there is a path to life and it can only be found through Jesus Christ through placing faith in him and him alone. And I pray, Lord, for anyone listening today to make that decision even now. Give them the grace to do so. We thank you, Lord, for this word. We receive it as from you. In your name we pray. Amen.